Please remain standing and turn with me in the Old Testament to Isaiah 33. I'll read you a brief passage from Isaiah 33, verses 2 through 6. And we'll turn to our sermon text in Acts. Isaiah 33, beginning at verse 2. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered, and your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers, as locusts leap it is leapt upon. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Amen. Let's turn now to Acts. Uh, We're going to begin at the end of chapter 15. Chapter 15, verse 36. We'll read through chapter 16, verse 15. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized 
and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Amen. You may be seated. So it's easy to say that we believe in the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty meaning um, God's total authority and total power over our lives, over everything else. It's also easy, though, in practical ways, as we actually go out and live our lives, um, to draw some pretty serious limits on God's sovereignty in our lives, to try to anyway, or to draw them in our minds. Not, not that we can actually limit it, but we'll often kind of imagine our lives and, and, and make choices as though there were these limits to God's sovereignty. Um, one example of this is with regard to our own failures. Is God really sovereign when I've messed up? Is he really able to bring good out of something bad? Or, or do my mistakes and my sins actually maybe somehow limit his ability to work in my life? So that's one way. Another example might be our plans for the future. So we say that we believe that God's in control. Um, but if we make certain plans and things don't seem to be working out, and then we become really irritated or even angry about our will not being done, well, then who's really trying to be sovereign? Who's trying to have the authority and the power to determine the future? Um, one more is the way that we think about other people. We think something like, there's no way that person is ever going to change. Oh, really? I have to ask, just how sovereign is the Lord? I want to show you today in this passage how the Lord Jesus proves his sovereignty, his total authority and total power in just those areas where we may be tempted to doubt it. And so our three points this morning are going to be that Jesus is sovereign over our conflict. That's up through 16.5. Second, that Jesus is sovereign over our future. Up through verse 10. And third, that Jesus is sovereign over our hearts, verses 11 to 15. So Jesus is sovereign over our conflict, over our future, and over our hearts. And in each of those sections, we're going to see in a different way how it is the Lord Jesus, ultimately, who is at work. There are a lot of human characters here, making a lot of decisions, doing a lot of different things. But what ties all of the event, these events together from start to finish is it's the Lord is directing the way things are really going to go. He is at work with total authority and total power to bring the church along into the future that he has planned for it. So first of all, Jesus is sovereign over our conflict. We've now come to what's known as the second missionary journey of Paul. Um, this, is, this one is going to be uh, much more wide-ranging than the first journey. He's going to go all the way to Greece this time. Um, sadly, though, this, this second missionary journey starts out on kind of a sour note, doesn't it? Remember Paul's initial traveling companion and 
ministry partner was Barnabas. And it's not just that they went on that first missionary journey together. They go back, they go way back, back in chapter 9, at the very beginning of Paul's Christian life. It was Barnabas who brought Saul, uh, sorry, brought, yes, well, Saul, something called Saul to the apostles and, and convinced them that, yes, he had really changed, that he had really met with Jesus. He was really now um, no longer a persecutor of the church. And so the, the, these two men had a very rich personal history. And you think about everything that they'd been through together, everything they had risked, the dangers that they had faced. For example, at Lystra, where Paul was stoned and so on. And that just makes it all the more tragic um, to see this sharp disagreement arise between them. Remember from um, chapter 13 that when Paul and Barnabas were in the middle of their first journey, uh, their young assistant, John Mark, who was supposed to be their traveling companion, their helper along the way, um, decided, for whatever reason, Luke doesn't go into great detail, that he was going to go back to Jerusalem at that point. Halfway through the mission, he was going to leave the field, so to speak. And um, Barnabas, at this point, wants to give John Mark another chance. And he wants to bring him along a second time and see if he'll follow through. Paul disagrees. He says, well, if he left us then, well, he's likely to leave us again. It's, that's just not going to be reliable enough. Paul wants to travel with someone that he can trust to stick with him all the way to the end. Um, Barnabas, you remember, has that reputation for being the, the son of encouragement. That's maybe that character trait um, that led him to take Paul under his wing back in chapter 9 in the first place. And now perhaps that same character trait that leads him to want to, to bring Mark with him again. Viewing that investment in Mark's life as, as worth the risk of Mark possibly letting the mission down. And Paul's saying, no, we shouldn't do that. And, and so what at one time would have been almost unthinkable now, now happens. He's... There's this irreconcilable disagreement. They can't resolve their difference, and so they're, they're not, they end up not ministering side by side for a time on this new journey. And this raises a serious concern. Right? If, if these major leaders, Paul and Barnabas, can't, can't work together, if there's this divide between them, it's not a good thing for the church. In fact, it's... That kind of division in church leadership is a serious threat to the whole, the whole body. It's heartbreaking. It would have been so discouraging, you can imagine, for the church in Antioch. And if you've experienced serious church conflict in your life, then you realize how, how tragic and impactful that can be on a community. But here's what we need to ask. What has Jesus been doing all through the book of Acts so far when there has been conflict that has started to impact the church? And I'm using the term conflict with another meaning now because there's been conflict from outside up till now, right? There's been a lot of persecution, whether it's the apostles getting arrested, the martyrdom of Stephen, and then James. So there's been conflict coming at the church from outside. And what has Jesus done through that external conflict. Well, what we've seen time after time is that what those persecutors meant for evil, God meant for good. Persecution um, in the early chapters actually became the occasion for the gospel spreading to new places. Remember when Stephen 
was martyred and Paul started ravaging the Christian community in Jerusalem, how many of the Christians fled to the outlying regions, and that was the way the gospel ended up coming to Samaria. So the enemies of the church, by their very efforts to destroy it, uh, were actually making it spread like wildfire. And um, those, were un- those consequences were unintended by those persecutors and probably by most of the Christians who were just trying to get away and be safe. But whose plan was being carried out? Something that none of those people were necessarily intending. And it was the plan of the Lord Jesus, the king of the church. It's his plan that's unfolding in the book of Acts. Well, in a similar way here, you can see this silver lining of this tragic circumstance. As a consequence of Paul and Barnabas separating, the gospel is now, once again, spreading even more widely. Paul and Barnabas go in different directions, taking the gospel with them. Um, So we don't want to say this conflict was a desirable thing, or that it wasn't painful for the people involved, or confusing and disorienting for the people Paul and Barnabas were leading. Surely it must have been. But what we do want to see is that Christ is still sovereign, that his ability to build his church is not hampered by the weakness in this relationship between these men. Jesus told his disciples, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And if the gates of hell can't derail Christ's plan to build his church, then Neither could Paul and Barnabas. Neither can you. Our sin, our setbacks of various kinds, they can have very serious consequences. They can cause great harm. But our sin does not get to have the last word in our lives, Christians. The church's problems, the way its people don't always see eye to eye, the way we even sometimes sin against one another, out of our desire to put our own authority, our own power on top and things like this. None of that has the last word in the church. Again, it can be a serious problem. It can do grave damage, but it does not have the last word because Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the one who loves to bring good out of evil. I think all the way back to Joseph and his brothers. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And so we can celebrate Christ's sovereignty, his ability to redeem and restore in spite of weakness. We need to trust the Lord Jesus that he has that total authority and total power to overcome even that tragic brokenness that we see in our lives and the life of the church. Um, By the way, this is not the end of the story of Paul and Mark. And later in Paul's letters, you can see him refer to Mark as uh, uh, a co-laborer once again, uh, their relationship restored. And that's yet another evidence of the grace and sovereignty of Christ at work in the long run. Although at this point, things are quite hard for the church in Antioch, for Paul, Barnabas, and for Mark. Um, just moving on to the beginning of chapter 16, just want to notice something else, um, another silver lining, something else good that comes of this conflict. Um, this creates an opportunity for a new young man to be discipled and prepared for ministry, and that's Timothy. Paul came to Derby and to Lystra. Lystra was a city where he was stoned, by the way. This, we shouldn't pass over lightly that he's going right back to the place where he was dragged out of the city and left for dead 
tells you something about Paul's courage and his commitment to these churches that he's planted, uh, going to great personal risk um, to attend to them and, and help them along the way. But he finds Timothy there, um, uh, who has been raised by uh, this believing mother, um, and his father is uh, a Greek, so it's a, a mixed marriage. And um, it's striking, I think, in light of what we just read about in chapter 15 last time, that Paul actually circumcises Timothy right away. Uh, it's, it's striking because Paul has just argued really forcefully at the Jerusalem Council against requiring Gentiles to be circumcised as a requirement for salvation. Um, and so you might think, wait, is Paul contradicting himself here? Well, no, he's not, because you're also going to remember, what's the spirit of that letter that gets sent to the churches as the outcome of the Jerusalem Council? It's very clear that Gentiles don't need to observe the Mosaic rituals in order to be saved, but there's this pastoral counsel that the apostles and elders also give. They were very concerned to help the Gentile believers in various places to avoid giving unnecessary offense to their Jewish background, brothers and sisters, uh, through doing things that would seriously offend those people's instincts and, and just create a barrier to fellowship. And that seems to be the motivating factor here behind uh, Paul circumcising Timothy. Does, does Timothy need to go through this to be saved? No, he doesn't. Um, does he need to do it to become more pleasing to God or to be a better Christian? No, none of those things. But uh, he can go through it. Um, in order to make his witness uh, more uh, clearer, to, to remove um, any excuses, to remove any excuses that followers of Judaism might have otherwise had to refuse to listen to him. And so um, I think that's a, the best explanation for the choice that Paul makes here. It's interesting that with Titus, he does not, um, a, another young pastor he mentors later, in other circumstances, he does not require the same thing of Titus, which is interesting. Uh, it's uh, exercising wisdom for these particular situations, and it's a good way to think about our own Christian liberty, that it's not only free to do things so that other people can't tell us what to do, it's a freedom to give up our rights if it will help us to be of greater service to others. So think about that as you consider your Christian liberty. All right, um, part two. Jesus is sovereign over our future. So um, Paul's been traveling mainly in the same areas where he's already been. Derby and Lystra, these churches he's already established. But now he and Silas want to extend the gospel to, to new places, as they did on their first journey. They want to go somewhere else. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. They were forbidden by the Holy Spirit, though, to speak the word in Asia. So we're, we're not told in what way the Holy Spirit forbade them. We're just kind of given this impression that, that Paul and Silas had some interest in, in going uh, to other parts of Asia Minor, modern Turkey, where they hadn't uh, been before. Um, and then uh, if you look on a map, like the one in the bulletin outline, um, you can see on a you can see that um, Mysia is on the far western edge. So you're getting close to the Aegean Sea, out going towards Greece, but they're still there in Asia Minor. Um, they want to go into Bithynia, which would have been a little north and heading back west. Uh, but once again, um, the Holy Spirit prevents them. And again, it doesn't say exactly how. 
But one night, Paul has this vision, supernatural vision, and the, the vision is of a man from Macedonia who's urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so it's to Macedonia, which is just to the north of Greece. So it's across the Aegean Sea uh, that Paul and Silas and Timothy travel next. Now, <clears throat> this section is pretty well known, but it, it's also um, it's partly well known because it's a little difficult and a little mysterious because Luke gives us just a little information. It leaves us very curious about how all of this went down for, for Paul and Silas and how they made the decisions they made and how the Holy Spirit was working and directing them. Um, it's like a, just a, a, like a sketch of just the outlines of the situation. And so we need to be careful as we ask here, what's the point? What are we supposed to learn here? And I want to first tell you what the point is not, some mistakes that we could make. The point is not for this to be a model for Christian decision-making in kind of everyday life today. Uh, some people reading this might think, well, on the basis of this passage, then what we need to do when we have important decisions to make is to listen for the Holy Spirit's voice to prevent us from doing certain things maybe we shouldn't do, to guide us, uh, to maybe give us some kind of supernatural revelation to tell us where we ought to go. Um, and the expectation then would be this should be normal, this should be happening all the time in the Christian life as the regular way that we, we go about deciding what to do. Um, the problem is that this doesn't take into account, among other things, how unique is this moment in the life of the church and the history of the spread of the gospel. Um, time and again, when there have been supernatural, um, special revelations in Acts, you think, for example, of the vision that Paul had uh, before the conversion of Cornelius when he was supposed to bring the... Uh, I'm sorry, did I say Paul? I meant Peter. When he was supposed to bring the gospel to the Gentiles for the first time, he receives a supernatural vision of the sheep being let down from heaven with the unclean animals on it and so forth. And that marks a unique, once-for-all transition right, in the proclamation of the gospel. The same thing is going on here. You think, well, how, how so? Well, what we have to realize is that to go into Macedonia, that's the first time that Christian missionaries will ever have crossed into Europe. It's the furthest west that the Christian mission will have ever been. It's like a new barrier is being breached. A new concentric circle is being explored as the gospel continues to move outward from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Now Europe is being included. And the bulk of this journey, Paul is going to, to spend in and between major cities in Greece, when up until now, he's only been working in Asia Minor. That's a big, a big change. He's going to be moving into a new area of the Greco-Roman world. And so that's um, one, way, one thing that should caution us against thinking that this special supernatural guidance through the Holy Spirit, through this dream, is, is some kind of pattern being set up for the ordinary Christian life today. Rather, the pattern that's fo that it's following is special supernatural visions coming when there's something extraordinary that God is intending to accomplish, a definitive leap forward in the movement of the gospel, uh, once, a once-for-all yeah, leap, leap forward in the gospel's reach. See, we have to resist the urge to read Acts as a how-to book for the church, a how-to book for the Christian life, as though it's giving us snapshots of what everyday, ordinary church life ought to look like for every church of all time. That, no, that's not what 
Acts is about. Obviously, it gives us great, uh, important guidance, important principles, and, and all kinds of foundational information for shaping church life and the Christian life. But uh, so much of Acts, including this section, are describing foundation stones that are being laid. And it can't be laid again. Things that Christ is putting into motion um, at one time in church history for a special reason that can't be repeated at other times in history. And so if we, if we read Acts as a how-to book, then what we're going to do is we're going to focus incorrectly on the human characters and whether or not we should imitate them. Am I supposed to do the same thing this person did or am I, or, or am I supposed to do the opposite and as, as though the point is just to get the moral lesson from each story. Similar, I, I give you this lecture all the time when we're talking about the Old Testament. Don't just read the Old Testament stories as having a moral lesson, right? The same thing is true for the book of Acts. We've got to figure out what is the, what is the point, the Luke's point, the Holy Spirit's point in giving us this book. Um, if we're focused on those human characters and their behavior and whether or not to imitate them, what are we going to miss? What we're going to miss is Christ. What is Christ doing? How is Christ acting from heaven through the Holy Spirit to lead the church and to shape its future towards the great big picture plan and destiny that he has in store for it? See, the lesson of this middle section is really that Jesus is sovereign over the future of the church, that he is the one who is determining where the gospel is going to go next. In a way, it's going to shape, really, the future of the world. <laughs> this decision for the gospel to go into Europe instead of into Asia. Think of all the great consequences that has, not just for church history, but for world history in the 2,000 years since, as others have observed. That's not my original idea. Um, so, it also shows us that Jesus' idea of what the future ought to hold often is not the same as ours. You remember from Isaiah that his thoughts are not our thoughts, his ways are not our ways. In fact, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so it should not surprise or frustrate or anger us when our vision for our own future does not come to fruition. See, there is an individual application here. But it's by way of seeing what's the point of the passage. And it's, it's to see... You know, sometimes we might think, why isn't my plan for my life come to fruition when I feel like I'm doing it for the right reasons? I think it's a worthy goal, just like Paul and Silas. Would they have been wrong to want to take the gospel into Asia? No. Into Bithynia? No. But what they have to recognize here is that they are not sovereign over their own future, over the, their ministry's future, over the church's future. It's Christ who's building his church. It is uh, Christ who is going to um, determine... The, the, the big picture direction of the gospel spread. And so our task then is to do the work that he set before us um, wherever that opportunity may be and not to pine after some different work that we wish he had set before us, which we can sometimes do. See, Paul and Silas here don't bemoan not getting to evangelize Bithynia. Instead, they embrace the opportunity to bring the good news where there was the opportunity. So we must never look at failure or lack of fruit in one area of Christian service as God's final answer, that we're doing it all wrong and he has no real use for us or something like that. It may simply be that God's preparing us for some more fruitful labor somewhere else in his plan. And he may be using providential circumstances to get us there because, again, it is ultimately Christ who's the one who's sovereign over our future and over the church's future. Let's remember that.
Finally, let's um, dip into Paul and Silas's first experiences in Macedonia and the city of Philippi in particular. We'll be in Philippi for a couple more weeks now as some very important episodes in the lives of Paul and Silas take place there. Um, Philippi was named after the great king Philip of Macedon, who was the father of, that you know, Alexander the Great, uh, many years before this. Um, it was, as Luke notes in verse 12, a Roman colony. And so it made it special in the region, a city with a very unique privileged relationship with Rome, the capital of the empire. Um, the most striking thing about Philippi that we notice in Paul and Silas's experience is that there doesn't seem to be a synagogue there. And you think about how this relates to other cities that they visited. Usually when they go to a city, Paul goes to the synagogue first, right? And he proclaims the gospel there. Well, here, this, the Jewish community in this city must have been quite small uh, for there not to be a synagogue for everyone to gather. Under those kinds of circumstances, um, there was a common practice that if, if Jews were living in a place that didn't have a synagogue for them to worship in, what they'd do is they'd regularly gather more informally at a place of prayer uh, like, at a place like this riverside, verse 13. Now, um, there at the riverside, they meet this woman, Lydia, who's already connected with the Old Testament faith as a worshiper of God. And I just want to draw your attention to how Luke says that Lydia came to faith in Christ. What's so striking about it is how simple it is. How easy it would be just to pass over. What does it say? One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord opened her heart. The Lord Jesus is not just sovereign over the church on the macro level, the big picture, shaping these big movements in church history, the big decisions of the church's big leaders and big moments and things like that. He's sovereign over the individual things. The coming to faith, bringing from spiritual death to spiritual life of every single one of his beloved people. That big picture sovereign power is exercised in your personal life. And this way that Lydia comes to faith, in its essence, is the way that every person comes to faith. They hear the word, verse 14a, and the Lord opens their heart, verse 14b. It really is as simple as that. And yet how profound it is. Jesus told Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Paul would write later to the Corinthians, the natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. He's not able to understand them. Why? Because they're spiritually discerned. So on our own, we can't, we can't just hear and accept and believe the gospel because our hearts are broken by our sin or ignorance. But when Christ comes, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he sovereignly reaches in and he opens up that tightly closed fist of a heart breaks the barriers down, and the scales fall away, as they did for Paul in chapters earlier. We can see. We believe. We embrace him. We find salvation, forgiveness, and eternal life, because we're trusting now 
in His death on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins and His resurrection from the dead to give us eternal life. That's how sinners come to faith. It's not through something that we do. It's through what Christ does. Through what Christ does. As He opens our hearts to receive the things that we've heard. I like the line in the carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem, where it says, How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. And that's making the comparison there about how Jesus came into the world in a very quiet, unassuming, inconspicuous way, laid in a manger and so on, without, without great fanfare, for, as far as most people were concerned. And it's in that same way that Christ comes to many individual hearts. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him, still the dear Christ enters in. And yet, like in the incarnation, that silent, unobtrusive, quiet, inconspicuous coming of Christ is also his coming in almighty, sovereign power into the world that he has made, in the case of the Incarnation, into the hearts of sinners he's saving by his sovereign grace, in the case of Lydia, and every sinner who comes to faith in him. And I hope that's a, that it's a hopeful thing for you to think about um, when you consider people that you are uh, longing to come to faith in Christ. Maybe you've been praying for for a long time, and we can be tempted to sometimes just to give up and think they're never going to believe We're forgetting, though, at that point, who is the one who gives the gift of faith. It's not us. We can't manufacture faith for ourselves. We cannot give faith to anybody else. We do not have that power. But Jesus can, and Jesus does. He's done it for us, and if he can do it for us, he can do it for the people that we love who need the same salvation that we do, the same forgiveness. They can't earn it or accept it any more than we can without that divine, supernatural, sovereign power of Christ interrupting our spiritual stupor, giving us that same living faith that Lydia had when she responded believingly to the message of Paul and Silas. And so I invite you to go from here this morning reassured of the sovereignty of Jesus in these practical ways that we've seen in these unfolding episodes of, in this transitional time in the book of Acts. I hope that you'll also be challenged about the ways that your imagination sometimes puts limits on that sovereignty of Christ that are not real. There are no limits. You shouldn't imagine that there are. Your sins and your mistakes and your broken relationships are no obstacle to Jesus accomplishing his purposes in your life. Your disappointed hopes for the future are no obstacle to Jesus. The... um, Hardness and unbelief of the people that you love, that you long to come to faith in Christ, is no obstacle to Jesus. Jesus is sovereign over our conflicts. He's so sovereign over our, our future. And he's sovereign over our hearts. All of those things. He is building his church in his way, in his time, in a way that sometimes doesn't match our plans. But you can be sure 
that nothing, not even the gates of hell, will be able to stop him. Nothing you can do, no matter how good, no matter how bad, will be able to change his good purposes coming true in your life and the life of his church. And that, I think, is something very exciting to be a part of. As we trust in our risen and ascended Savior to rule his church with total authority and total power, to which we cannot add, but also which we cannot compromise. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the sovereign reign of the Lord Jesus Christ over his church. Lord, we rest in him. We're so thankful for the way that from start to finish, as many things as were going on for good and for bad in the church in these verses, Lord, that through it all, the Lord Jesus was working his purposes out. The Holy Spirit was putting in, into a living reality the things that Jesus long had intended for the salvation of sinners and the establishment of the church in a new place, a new continent. Thank you, Lord, for the conversion of Lydia the way that you show us that quiet, simple way that you do the most amazing miracle of bringing spiritual life and planting your church in a new place. And Lord, we ask that you would give us the privilege of experiencing that miracle of your grace witnessing it take place time and again here in our midst as your kingdom comes in the hearts of sinners saved by grace here at Resurrection OPC. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.